Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Episode 35 of Americans Watching the Footy. We are Americans. We watch the footy. I'm Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. Hello from South San Francisco, California to wherever in the world you may be listening. At whatever time of day you may be listening. So good time of day. As we've done the last two weeks with six teams on a bye this week, we are going to discuss each of those teams, kind of give a mid-season progress report, take inventory of where they are, speculate what's ahead for them. And this is a really interesting group. I mean, you could say that about all three weeks, but I think this group has a distinct theme to it, at least in the upper half of it. We've got the teams that currently sit one, two, and three on the ladder. Then we've got one at eighth, one at 13th. The two in eighth and 13th have had really nice runs under first-year coaches. We'll get to singing their praises in a bit. And then one team that's way, way at the bottom. There's, you know, normally you would expect if you just pick six teams at random, you'd get two from the top tier, two from the middle of the pack, two from the bottom. And this time we've got three top tier, one way at the bottom and two in the middle where I think regardless of results, the tone surrounding them is going to be overwhelmingly positive. Even if the record may not suggest it for one of them in particular, but let's see if we're going to be talking about them first. Let's spin the wheel. Let's randomize this. Oh boy, we are uh, uh, not talking about that team first. Oh, here go hell come. We talked all this positivity only to be stuck with talking about North Melbourne first. I feel like we kind of did it to ourselves. I had said a lot about how I felt about North Melbourne this past week, kind of getting out my frustration both on Twitter and in our round 13 recap after they fell flat against Greater Western Sydney. But still a lot more to be talked about in terms of if there's really an arc to the season at all, or if it's all just completely downward. Even their win was a downer. Singular win. They are 1-12. They are in 17th. They hold on to the second-to-last spot by 1.6% over the West Coast Eagles. And looking at the talent that they do have, especially the youth, It's a little surprising that they're down that far. You could say that maybe a lot of that talent might be raw, might be undeveloped, but that skill alone should lead to better results than this. It's not like anyone had high expectations for North Melbourne at the start of the season. It's not like anyone thought, oh yeah, this team could be in the finals mix or make a push to stay relevant in terms of their position in the ladder. But I would have at least liked to see a sense of direction, a sense of growth, 
chemistry, a consistent, pleasant development, a breakout performer who's able to build on his game each week. And instead, there's been none of that since round four. When they played Sydney down to the wire, it was a very winnable game. Seemed like a really nice step after getting blasted by Brisbane the week before. And that was a game after which David Noble gave a particularly harsh spray, according to all sources. That was the team for whom he was previously the list manager. I think that may have played into his emotions there, but there was potential that he lost some of the players with that, which I kind of don't get. Maybe it's just our perspective in America versus how coaches may behave in Australia. But if you go out and play like that, do you not expect to get blasted by your coach for it? They turned it around a week later, played really well. And since then, every single game has been a loss by at least 47 points. Eight weeks in a row. You know, they didn't have the distinction of a bunch of 50-point losses in a row like the Eagles because they've had 47 and 49-point losses sprinkled in, but it's been bad. There have been some interesting changes happening in regard to the playing list. We've seen Jack Zebel go forward after spending a lot of time at fullback for the past few years and to start this season as well. Zebel's going to be out probably a month or more with a facial fracture that he suffered against Greater Western Sydney. Probably the most notable injury at this point. I guess guys aren't just going to like, you know, wear the Rip Hamilton mask. I guess that's not really a thing in footy. I don't know if there are rules against that or if it's just something that isn't done. That first game where he got pushed forward, Zeebel actually did really well. Kicked five goals in that Sydney game. And since then, he's kicked five goals. Only problem is that's been in nine games. We've also seen Nick Larkey begin to emerge more as a forward target, not necessarily in that key position yet, especially when Todd Goldstein has been down there more and more. And that's where the other big change has been in that Tristan Jerry at times at the start of the year was the number one ruck ahead of Goldstein. Hasn't been the case since he came back from his injury, a hot spot on his foot. But there's something there with Jerry that is a very encouraging sign, especially now that he's signed on for another three years. It can be hard to replace someone who's been so solid at one position for such a long time because a team may often take that as a given and not build up good backup resources behind them. Clearly, they made the right moves, scouting, drafting, and now locking up Jerry long term. You've also got Callum Coleman-Jones, for whom they traded with Richmond. He's had a little action this year, has not really impressed, but he seems to be the next Ruck project, because at 33 years of age, how much more time does Goldstein have, and does he want to chase a flag? I think he'd be a valuable piece for a lot of teams. He could also perhaps go to England to reunite with his cousin Anthony, famous Ravenclaw. The thing is, the way we've talked about them so far actually sounds kind of positive, and I don't think that really reflects what a shit show this has been. You can tell already Jason Horton Francis is unhappy. I think after these past couple weeks, it's clearly more than speculation. I thought him going on a quick trip to Adelaide to see his family for Mother's Day was innocuous. I thought it was basically a non-story. It was just he should have known to tell the team, hey, I'm going out of town for a day. But more recently, seeing his body language, he doesn't seem to be happy with players at all. Seemed to be pretty frustrated with Todd Goldstein. Goldstein seemed pretty frustrated with him. Actually saw a video today in which Goldstein was talking about it. He brushed it off. Actually made a joke about it, saying they joked about having a punch up somewhere afterward, probably making light of the Melbourne incident with Stephen May and Jake Melksham. 
the players are actually going on this overnight trip during the bye week to see what they can manage in terms of, I guess, unity. The question is, even if the players are united, do they support their coach? Do they support the greater structure? There are more disconnects than just within the list. I also want to ask, is this overnight camp a good thing or could this further the divide between players and coaches? That was why I brought up that concern. With that rift already present, I feel like we're more likely to emerge from this with a unified front from the North players rather than some sort of cliques having developed. And it's a matter of what direction they want to take, how they voice their concerns. I have a feeling that it's going to be against David Noble. And then that'll put the ball in the executive's court. And we like Sonia Hood, and hopefully she makes the right decision. We like her because she follows us on Twitter. And is just willing to engage with fans a lot more than a lot of other executives at major sports teams. For example, she doubled down on what she'd said about the way the team was branding. Journalists, A journalist said that North were moving away from their North Melbourne and Shinboner spirit identity. She said that that was still there, but they were using just the kangaroo mascot more to help bring in more of a youth audience. Well, I will say their class jumper for this year with the kangaroo head on it is awesome. And their Sir Doug Nichols jumper is outstanding as well. If you haven't listened to our ranking special yet, we very much praised it. Injuries have not helped this team. They've missed a lot of significant players. Taron Thomas was out for a chunk of games earlier in the season. Aaron Hall missed seven games before playing against GWS. And you can see the kind of impact his return had. I mean, doesn't help that Ben McKay remains out with a concussion. He's been through the ringer this year. Or maybe he's just excelling at Carlton. Ben McKay has played in seven games and been subbed out four times. And whereas with some players' absences, we've said it's different to lose a player mid-game than it is to have a whole week to prepare for their absence. If McKay's not out there, whether it's been known for a week or if it happens all of a sudden mid-game, everything just completely falls apart. Their entire defensive structure is so reliant on him. And don't get me wrong, he's quite a good player, but to absolutely capsize like that anytime he's not out there just really shows a lack of depth and lack of emerging pieces. And it's just, I don't know if there's any reason to be optimistic about anything there, which you would have thought entering this season, no, they're probably not going to be very good. We said that. But where would you want them to be at this point in the season? Let's forget record. Sure, they may be in a better universe. They're 3-10, and 4-9, and nine, if things really go well. But coming into the bye, you would hope we would have been able to pick out a couple of emerging players, maybe one that we expected, maybe one that came out of nowhere. We'd be talking about Jason Horn Francis's development in a positive light. Instead, there's just not a lot to report on. We can report that Luke Davies Uniac is probably the central piece for them going forward, along with Jai Simpkin. The question is, of course, will these guys stick around? But really like the progress that Davies Uniac has made. In terms of looking back toward defense, once you've moved Zebel out of there, it has gotten exceptionally thin. Makai's a great piece when he's in. Hall is good at moving the ball out, but he's not great in man-on-man defensive matchups. Kieran Hayden has been inconsistent. Kane Turner hasn't been effective in general, although he did an okay job against Josh Kelly at times this past round. Kelly accrued big numbers, but they weren't necessarily as meaningful. But there aren't many good things to report. Going off the past couple games, some good progress for Curtis Taylor. So they're developing some good things at full forward, but 
you would also have hoped that Jaden Stevenson would have been among those good things, and boy, is he not. And you mentioned Taron Thomas. He was dropped down to the VFL for failing to adhere to team standards. So there's even more of an issue there that, again, spills off the oval. That could mean a lot of things. It could mean drinking, could mean late to practice, could mean he was a dick. We don't know. Going back to Horn Francis, I mean, he's played well. His talent is evident. He was the rising star in round seven for his performance in what was otherwise a crappy game against Carlton. But the lack of chemistry and the concern that he might want out already has been the most common discussion about him. If we were looking at him and seeing good performances without the other stuff, and this team had maybe won another game or two, we'd say, all right, they're developing, they're showing signs that they're on track, they're still probably minimum two years away from really being relevant, but working in the right direction. Instead, I feel that they've gotten farther from relevance and farther from being a competitive team this year, which is hard to believe considering how far they were to begin with. The warning signs were there from the beginning. The fact that their only win was against a half-waffle West Coast Eagles in round two, and that was only by 15, said everything I needed to know about them. Combine that with round three, and even with the surge against Sydney, I knew that there wouldn't be much happening for them. And from there, it was a matter of, can the group stay tight? Can they build something collectively? And they certainly have not. I mean, there's no point in looking down the road for them this season. We got to start thinking about what are the moves to be made after the season? Is there going to be some sort of review? Which players will want to leave? What will the fallout of another failed North Melbourne season be? I was hoping at least we'd get a performance every few weeks like the one they had against the Swans. Their second quarter against Melbourne was really good to the point where they were very much in the game heading into the second half. They played an awesome first quarter against Gold Coast, and that's about it. If we can remember specific good quarters they've played, pick out two or three good quarters of football over an eight-game sample, that's really fucking bad. I hope that they at least get towards respectability. You know, there's no team in this competition out of the 18 that I want to be a complete dysfunctional mess. I want to have a reason to tune in and watch all 18 teams every week because I really like this sport. There's no team that I have this sort of deep-rooted hatred against. Yet. And heck, it can't be Collingwood for us because they got Mason. There are teams that I would certainly want to see win more than others, but I want every team to give me a reason to watch them each week. And these guys haven't done that. It sucks. You're watching for the individual players more than the collective team, and that's never a good thing. On that incredibly optimistic note, we're going to spin the wheel again. Time to start talking about more fun stuff. How about the winner of the most recent game, that being Collingwood? All of a sudden, they're back in the eight. They are way ahead of where anybody expected them to be. Through 13 games of the Craig McRae era, they've had all sorts of different people stepping up. You had the typical cast a lot of the time, a lot of the older guards, some of them in different positions than in the past year or couple years. But a couple newer pieces have emerged really nicely. And aside from rounds eight and nine, when they lost pretty handily to the Tigers and Bulldogs, they have been in every game, even though one of those games they were in was a loss to the West Coast Eagles. Personnel-wise, Jack Crisp has continued to establish himself as a top 
top midfielder. Definitely going to be racking up Brown Lobos, probably the most of anyone on his team to this point. Patrick Lipinski, since coming over from the Bulldogs, has helped offset the loss of Adam Trelaw. Not that they're the same player, but in that he came over basically replacing him in a lot of ways. The biggest thing that I've noticed about this team, though, is that the young guys have never seemed overwhelmed by the moment. This is a team that routinely plays in front of the biggest crowds in the league. They have played in front of the three biggest crowds this year, all of which have been over 75,000. Whether it be Jack Ginnivan taking the league by storm or Reef McGinnis debuting and playing well before getting hurt. Nick Dacos looking completely polished with really, other than one turnover in his very first game, no rookie mistakes. These guys have gotten thrown into the fire and they've handled the pressure really well. And I think that goes beyond reflecting on just McRae and the coaching at the top level. It really is a positive reflection on the development throughout the entire club. You look at the staff from top to bottom, the guys who are working with the VFLers, the guys who are in charge of drafting, scouting, talent evaluation. And clearly these guys are all really well prepared mentally because of all the teams in this competition, the one that I think you have the most pressure playing for would be Collingwood just by their high profile nature and that they're in so many big marquee games. And with that credit, Extending beyond McRae and to the entire football department, it's important to note that these pieces were in place during much of Nathan Buckley's time as well. And even though his time there ended disappointingly, the success they had under him making that run to the grand final in 2018 did wonders for the group there that came of age. Crisp, who Ethan just found out has the nickname Steak Knives apparently, was a fullback in that 2018 Grand Final. You had Brayden Maynard on the young side then. Brody Majacek had just come into the fold as a mature age recruit. So this isn't necessarily a sudden thing for Collingwood, even with the pieces they've added since then, with both Dacos Sons and Ginevin, among many others. It's the way the new and old have blended together that's been so impressive. I know made by many is just kind of a slogan I don't think it's something that the coaches preach every day, as far as I know, but it's actually really fitting. And let's also note that this team has had to deal with a pretty significant share of injuries. If you just look at their injury list right now, Brody Grundy's been out a couple months and is still about four weeks away. They lost Nathan Kruger for the year. McGinnis, who I was super impressed with, is out for the year. Both of those with dislocated shoulders, may I add. They've had a lot of guys miss games to illness, including Scott Pendlebury. And for the most part, they've been able to handle all of these things really well, giving off the impression that they're, you know, a much more seasoned team that's been together with this current core and with this current coaching staff for so long. And while there is a decent amount of continuity and carryover from what was there before, it's hard to immediately transform, especially considering how lousy last season was. One part of that transformation is more on the individual level, and it relates to the captain, Pendlebury, switching from midfield to halfback. He still pushes forward a decent amount, along with both Dacos's, but he's probably transitioned into his new role better than any of the other midfielders who have had similar fates have done. He is the most accurate kick, I would say, out of the defensive 50 and the defensive half overall. He's starting more plays as opposed to being in the middle of them, and his vision is very clear. In terms of other roles being adjusted, I think it's time to talk about Mason Cox. 
he's had a connection with Craig McRae from the beginning of his time at Collingwood when McRae was head of development. They stayed close when McRae was working elsewhere. And you can tell now that Fly has remembered how to use him. There was that weird game against Brisbane, his second game of the year, where McRae said, everybody tall, go full forward. But since then, since he came back in round 10, had a brief outing then, but these past three rounds when he's played the full game, he's been in more of a Ruck Rover spot, has been taking important marks all over the field and had his best half of football since probably the 2018 preliminary final against Richmond in the second half against Melbourne this past round and really helped turn that game on its head. We talked a lot in our round 13 recap about how great his performance was, so don't need to go into much further detail about it, but that he was able to shift his role, change his game, and do that after looking so out of place in that Brisbane loss is a really good reflection on this coaching staff's attention to detail and ability to make quick changes. Those quick changes can also play into how well they've been able to respond from injury. Jamie Elliott's injury was a significant one, an AC joint from which he recovered surprisingly quickly, but Mayachek, among others, stepped up and their scoring didn't dip that much, if at all. And then Darcy Cameron, holy cow, didn't think all that much of him last year and thought that the Pies would be in real trouble without Brody Grundy. Now between Cameron and Cox, they're hardly missing Grundy. Keith Shaw noted that what makes this team so good is that they're really relentless. They just keep coming at you. And I think one thing that kind of speaks to that is every game, they seem to at least have one quarter where they just dominate. And I think it's a sign of either They come out hot and teams have to adjust to them or they just keep pounding away, keep wearing you down like a battering ram trying to knock down a wall. And then finally they break through. That's where a guy like John Noble has come in really well. A solid one percenter guy, really good tackler. He had a couple plays that saved that Carlton game. And that's another example of us being awestruck by one surprise performer, at least pretty much every game for him. And different guys stepping up is obviously a sign of a good team. You know, I would have thought entering this year, if you had asked me at the bye, what would you expect for Collingwood? What would be considered good? If they were somewhere around 12th or 13th and had shown signs that last year was rock bottom, I would have said, all right, they seem to be on the right track. They seem to be progressing to the point where a finals run in 2023 is within reality. They're already doing that this year. They're ahead of schedule. They're exceeding expectations. Chemistry seems good. And I think you can really look at last year as an aberration. And they've got a favorable stretch of schedule coming up after the bye in which they could maybe get a little separation from the pack. They're currently 8-5 and five in 8th place, clear of a number of teams that have yet to play their 13th game. But looking post-bye for them, they host Greater Western Sydney Then they go to Gold Coast, which all of a sudden has become a crucial game because of its relevance to both teams. Collingwood managed to get past Gold Coast after the Suns stuck with them a lot of the way in round seven. After Gold Coast, three that should be an easy 12 points in North Adelaide and Essendon. Adelaide at the Adelaide Oval is never as easy, though. Still, I think this team has more than what it takes to do that, especially with what they were able to accomplish on the road in the West, even when Fremantle are akin to the Wicked Witch of the West in that they melt from the slightest amount of water. 
A rough final four weeks that could bring them a bit back down to earth. Port, Melbourne, Sydney, and Carlton. But if they do make it through that with a couple wins, I think it will bode really well for them heading into finals. They'll have been battle-tested throughout August, and at that point, September wouldn't phase them. Team three of six, as we spin the wheel again. Ladies and gentlemen, Black Mantle. At the start of the year, we said these guys were going to be good. I was thinking they could finish somewhere around six. Right now, they're at 10 and three. They sit in third place on percentage, entering the bye. Tied for the best record in the league, and man, this team has been fun to watch. They are so well coached. Their games aren't the highest scoring, but they defend so well. Their forward pressure is outstanding. There's nonstop action in their games. And even when their style is taken away from them, like it was this past round, again, you can go back to our round 13 recap to hear us talk more about that, but even when they've been confronted and have had to change things up, They've done so really well, and you're going to hear us talk a lot about good coaching, and I think Justin Longmere is the clearest candidate for coach of the year at this point. I started to see some of Fremantle's progress near the end of last year. As an Eagles fan, the Western Derby in round 22 was so deflating, but also impressive on so many levels, looking at how far Fremantle had come in the couple years that we've been watching, and that has continued and then some this year. Andrew Brayshaw, Sean Darcy, David Mundy, and Luke Ryan have been amazing in the midfield. Brayshaw could be a Brownlow candidate at the end of the day. Mundy is still ageless. Darcy has been off and on with some injury struggles, but when he's been in, he's been one of the most solid rucks in terms of overall play at the position. Luke Ryan has surprised me a bit, although he probably shouldn't have considering his track record. I had some concern about their forward group, at least in terms of goal-kicking ability, which really plagued them last year. But Rory Lobb has established himself as a top-notch tall forward. He can also work in the ruck. Sam Switkowski, I really like as a small forward. He's kind of less of a goal sneak, and he'll do more half-forward work, but I really like the way he's deployed. And then they've got some really versatile pieces like Griffin Logue, who, over the course of this season... I discussed this in a recent episode, I forget which one, but over the course of the year, my thoughts on him have gone from, this is one of the weakest guys on this team, and it would be really easy to replace him, they probably should replace him, to, wow, he's a lockdown defender all of a sudden, to, oh, wait a minute, also he can play forward, and to have a player who's not just good, but can slide anywhere like that, helps you make sure you have your best 22 available players in the lineup, instead of just your best six or seven in each position. I also really loved watching Nathan O'Driscoll earlier this year. Unfortunately, he has a foot injury that they've been super vague about. He hasn't played since round eight. Also on the injury front, unfortunately, Jai Amis is out for the rest of the year with a kidney injury that required surgery. He only came into the lineup because of COVID, looked really good in his first game, even if it was against North Melbourne, and that's about all we got to hear of him. Other than his injury... They've been super vague about injuries in general. Now, I don't know if the league has standards that teams need to uphold with injury reporting and such. Like, the NFL has some very detailed and strict guidelines about it. I'm not sure how that all works here, admittedly. But they seem to really give as little detail as possible. And, I mean, if you can do that, if you're allowed to do that and keep opponents guessing, more power to you. It's just, we'd like to know. 
But even without O'Driscoll in there, even with the injuries to Amos, Matt Taverner being in and out with back problems, Nat Fife only having played one game this past round, Heath Chapman dealing with a hamstring injury, they can still field a really good 22 every week. Bailey Banfield was the injury sub a bunch of times, and he'd be a top forward on a lot of teams. This team is so deep that Lloyd Meek is only in there when Sean Darcy can't play. Lloyd Meek would be one of the top Rockmen on just about any team. In recent weeks, we've seen the reemergence of two Michaels in that forward group, both on the smaller side, both on the pressure side. Michael Walters had a down first half of the season, has been finding more of the ball as a result of the turnovers he's helped create. And then Michael Frederick has taken his game to the next level this season. We highlighted him as someone that we were looking forward to watch in our home and away preview way back before the season began. We knew that he was a good runner. We knew that he had a lot of raw ability. It seems like they figured out how to use him a whole lot better this year. Between the wing and half forward is where he operates best. And after an early season misstep in which he was placed full forward, he's been on the right spot on the ground from the beginning nearly every game. I've constantly compared what he does to a guard running a full court press on a basketball court and basically just never relenting. And at some point, he's going to create a turnover or there was a sequence in their win over Geelong where him and Walters and the other forwards were basically able to keep the cast just kicking it around in their own 50 for a while. And finally, it turned into a turnover and a goal. And that's just kind of been this team's MO, just excellent forward pressure that generates a lot of trouble. And then other than this game against Hawthorne, where they were forced out of their element, you know, this isn't a team that likes to have a lot of set shots because they're able to get going in transition, whether that be from their back end or off of a turnover in the forward 50. And then they get a quick, easy shot on goal, usually from somewhere close to the goal square. Hawthorne took them out of their element, and the only other real issues they've had lately are the elements. They had two embarrassing games against Collingwood and Gold Coast, Collingwood in Perth, Gold Coast in Queensland, where they just seem to forget how to operate with any sort of water falling from the sky. And I'm really not exactly sure what to make of that in terms of and why they weren't able to adjust. Thankfully, the finals tend to be in a drier part of the season, and that's where they're headed at this point. And like how Collingwood are going to be battle-tested if they make it, with their late schedule being what it is, it's the exact same way for Fremantle. They have a rematch against Carlton at Marvel, round 15. They beat Carlton by 35 the first time, and I think that was when the Flagmantle craze really started. Then they host Port Adelaide, they go to St. Kilda, they host Sydney at Richmond at the G, hosting Melbourne. Even their game at the Bulldogs at Marvel in round 21 is far from a certainty. Thankfully, they finish the schedule easily, so if they have any issues with making the top four, I have a feeling that they'll be able to rebound and get the job done, but they really don't have any team that stylistically has overcome them, and that's about the biggest positive that I can say about any team throughout the AFL. I think it's pretty clear at this point that Fremantle are the best defensive team. It's something that shows up pretty much every week. Even in their losses, the defense hasn't usually been the issue. I think the only one where you could say it struggled at all was against Collingwood. And there were bigger problems there than pure defense. And they've had to shuffle around pieces there a bit. Heath Chapman's been out for a bit. Griffin Logue went back there and did well. 
It's been great seeing Jordan Clark run the ball out of halfback. Hayden Young and Brennan Cox have each had games in which they've starred. There's no weak link among this group, even five or six guys down the list, it seems. I think it's also fair to say they are the deepest team in the league. In a lot of sports, at least in the U.S., there's a saying that defense travels. You know, it shows up game in, game out. You know, like referring to basketball, some nights you might not shoot well, but defense can show up every night. That's why this team has such a solid foundation and such a high floor is their defense is so good. They don't have to rely on kicking straight. It's not like they have to have huge offensive numbers. And that defense usually generates a lot of easy shots for them off of turnovers anyway. This is a team that's entirely predicated on defense. They have a style and they know how to win with it. And with that style, they tell everybody else, hey, your move, you have to beat us. We're halfway through this last progress report. The top two and an interesting team further down still remain. Team four of six will be the team that was on the ladder until the very end of last game, that being Melbourne. They had 10 straight wins to open the season, and even though some concerns were developing there in some of their lack of forward pressure compared to last year, when you're winning, those problems don't get anywhere near the attention that they do when you're losing, maybe internally, but especially in terms of the media. And in this three-game losing streak against Fremantle, Sydney, and Collingwood, we've really had time to notice where their weaknesses are. And that's been compounded by some issues in terms of depth, especially defensively, most notably Stephen May first being concussed, then being suspended for drinking and punching Jake Belcher while in concussion protocols. Without May, the defense is rudderless. He's really that central piece that everything else kind of hinges on defensively. You know, I still think this is a pretty good forward group. Bailey Fritch probably should be given the ball a lot more if there was ever a time to say, hey, let's run everything through one guy. Fritch would probably be that guy. Especially with some of the struggles that Ben Brown has had of late. The question is, who's going to be the one that gives it to him because their midfield is still ridiculous. Clayton Oliver is a possession machine, even if not all of them might be as effective. Christian Petraka has kind of taken a backseat in comparison, which I wouldn't have necessarily expected. And you've had Angus Brayshaw moving toward halfback and being a vital piece there. But that doesn't take away from what they've been lacking at fullback. And that's an area in which they've been let down recently where they hadn't been in the prior 10 months of football. As we said in the round 13 recap, their best 22 is the best of the best. If you were to look at each team's best 22, everybody healthy, they're the winners. But a pass may be number, I don't know, 24, 25 out of that. There's a huge drop off and that's been exposed the last couple of weeks. As much as the focus has been on May being out, Belksham has been a decent reserve guy. And how are they going to patch up a hole left by Tom McDonald being out, at least for the rest of the home and away season with a Liz Frank injury? It's not like Adam Tomlinson showed much promise considering how poorly he fared against Sam Reed in the Swans game. I think that one matchup may have lost them that game more than any other even when their greatest trouble as a unit may have been struggling to keep the ball in the forward 50. Either they convert or get sent back the other way pretty quickly. Thankfully, Fritch is an accurate kick, 
and Luke Jackson may have done wonders to his confidence and maybe rounding into his top form again following the Queen's birthday game. But those two aren't going to be able to sustain Melbourne's offense in full, especially when they're going to need to score more as their defense gets a bit thinner. I think we're going to find out if the May-Melksham incident was the beginning of the end of what looked like could be a team that dominates for years, or if this was just a flash in the pan and something that will be laughed about in the aftermath, either they get back on track, look like the team that's been set up to succeed for years to come, establish themselves as a dynasty, or show why they went five decades without a flag in the first place. You know, some teams are successful and some teams are not successful, and usually there are reasons for that beyond luck. And if this ends up being the beginning of the end, I'm not saying it's going to be, because I still really like this team overall. I think they're really fundamentally sound. They're really talented at the top. But if this is the beginning of the end, the discourse surrounding this era of Demons football might change from this was the team that ended the drought to this was a team that won one flag instead of three or four. And again, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I still really like this team. They're loaded with talent. You already talked about Luke Jackson, whose role could be magnified as seems like the knee problems have popped up again for Max Gone, who had been playing really well. That loss to Sydney, he was phenomenal. He really kept them in the game. And if these injuries pile up in key spots, it'll prove why it's hard to run the table for a whole year and why it's hard to win a flag. If you have injuries in key spots, it can be really difficult to overcome. Look at Geelong last year losing Tom Stewart. That changed everything for them. You've got to not just be really, really good. You've got to have some things fall into place. And last year, things fell into place for the Demons. Right now, they're not falling into place. That said, they've got nine more games plus finals, so there's plenty of time for those things to fall into place, and the talent is obviously there. The issue is, can they have that talent in the right place and doing the right things? Because thus far, they're one and three against the current eight. The good news is they're going to have a chance to prove themselves before the finals, and I don't think there's any concern about them making the finals or even falling out of the top four. I think that would require a lot of things to go wrong. They do have some pretty interesting remaining games playing the Lions twice, both round 15 at home and round 23 away. They've got a visit to Adelaide, a trip to Geelong on a Thursday, home game against Port Adelaide and Alice Springs, rematch there that should be a lot of fun. They've got a second meeting with the Bulldogs, this one at Marvel, They've got a trip to Frio. They've got a second meeting with Collingwood. They finally play Carlton round 22. So we'll have a much better indication of them then. I think they're going to get back to that sort of impenetrable look where there's just no way to push them off the top of the mountain. Like, I think the game against Port Adelaide was a great example of that, even though that came at a time when the power were a complete mess. That and the St. Kilda game is another good example. I think That actually might be the most accurate is that St. Kilda game where they basically just get out there and say, hey, try to stop us. You can't try to rattle us. You can't. We're just going to do our thing. Be very methodical. Move the ball around. Spread things out. Make sure that you can't get on a run. And I think we're going to see more of that. I think they're going to get back to their roots, use this bye week well, and put themselves in position to succeed the rest of the way. Two teams to go, teams that played in a really intriguing game a couple rounds ago, a game that got really out of hand because of how it was umpired. I'm 
not sure how much you can take from that game, but that was probably Hawthorne's best win of the year, just in terms of the status of their opponent, and they're who we're talking about next. As I said in the recap from last round, they are more impressive than any other 4-9 and nine team you've probably ever seen. I have had so much fun watching the Hawks. They were a team I really didn't think about much prior to this year. I know that as a Geelong fan, I'm supposed to not like them, but I don't really have anything negative to say about them other than that their color scheme is kind of ugly. Brown and gold is tough to pull off, and only a few teams like the University of Wyoming do it really well. I know you've talked about Justin Longmuir for Coach of the Year, and I think there's an argument there, but if it's up to me and we're giving this award out right now, I'd give it to Sam Mitchell. I think he has done a wonderful job. The first few weeks you saw their counterattacking on display, then teams adapted to it, found ways to slow them down and stop them, and in turn, they've started playing different styles of games. They've been really well equipped with different skills within the course of a week to come out and confront their opponent the best way they can, because they don't just have the talent to come out and impose their will on someone. This Fremantle game, even though they ended up ultimately losing, was a great example of how disciplined and how well-trained this team is. Clearly, the players are very bought in to the system. They're very easily coachable and willing to change things up on the fly. And I just think this is a smart, well-run group. And as they add more and more talent, these guys are going to be really scary. The Hawks have been in every game they've played but two. Blown out by St. Kilda in round four at Gold Coast in Darwin in round 11, a game that surprised us for multiple reasons. They bounced back well with tight losses against Collingwood and Fremantle. They're another relentless team, and the way they've been able to give even the top of the ladder a run for their money is all the more impressive considering just how many injuries they've been dealing with. We don't know when big boy Ben McAvoy is going to be back from his broken collarbone. He was out very early on, and at that time we thought, oh, geez, their ruck is in a pretty dire place. At a time, they had no true ruck. Ned Reeves had a shoulder injury. Max Lynch has had rotten luck this entire season with multiple concussions and a bee sting reaction, I believe. And yet they found more and more ways to compete. Jack Gunston and Mitch Lewis have both missed time at forward. Sam Frost is a solid defender, but pushed forward this past round. He's going to be out four to six weeks with a knee injury. Chankwoth Jath, who has become such an important part of starting plays for them from anywhere in the back half, was out for four rounds, and not coincidentally, I think, the Hawks lost all four by double digits. Admittedly, he's been a bit less prominent since his return. Some of that could be credited to the time needed to ramp up from injury. Some of that could be teams adapting and not just letting him run all over the place, because as exciting as he is, He's a game-changing player, and you can't let him do that if you have any way of stopping him. I think teams have done a better job limiting him lately. But that's also opened up more avenues for James Sicily, who is probably leading the way for an All-Australian spot at halfback, as well as Jack Scrimshaw as of late. One of the other things that's so interesting about these guys is that for a lot of teams, if you saw they were 4-9 and and have lost a bunch of close games or run out of gas late, you'd be... Pretty negative on it. 
But I think when they've run out of gas, it's been in games where it's really impressive that they hung around for as long as they did. At times, I think maybe they've needed to work on their pacing a little bit so they don't expend themselves too much in the first three quarters. And they've been better about that lately after some hiccups around round six and round eight. There's really no game that you can look at as, oh, they blew this one or, oh, they pissed this one away. Aside from those two round six and eight, I would say that. Round six wasn't even they blew it. It was just they got off to a great start and then Sydney largely outplayed them and then dramatically outplayed them down the stretch. Essendon, you could say they really fell apart, especially considering the quality of competition. But I don't think this is a team that you could look at these close losses and say, oh, they're losing a bunch of winnable games and that's a trend they need to reverse. If it's something that persists over the rest of the year, I would say it's cause for minor concern. But right now, I think they're just in a really good position overall. They're growing, they're developing, their coaches have established that they're really good at their jobs. And if this team can just add a couple pieces through trades and signings and just stay healthier, a finals run could be in the cards as soon as next year. Heck, They might not be completely out of the conversation this year, even though it would be really tough for them to get in. Their schedule does get a lot softer in just a couple of weeks' time. Their five-game stretch out of the bye looks largely favorable, aside from the Bulldogs, although that's a game where I could totally see them running over the Dogs enough in the first half to put some separation between them if they can kick accurately enough. Then at GWS, Adelaide, West Coast, and North. So they could definitely make noise on the ladder, even if it might not last. And if they can win some of those games, it'll just be another positive sign for Sam Mitchell in year one. The fact that Mitchell has installed such a different system from Alistair Clarkson and that it's already paid such immediate dividends is impressive beyond belief. And replacing Clarkson to begin with, I mean, you're replacing coaching royalty. I think part of it is a testament to something that I've believed for a long time is that almost every coach in every sport gets to a point where either the game has passed them by or more likely in Clarkson's case, just hearing the same thing again and again gets stale and it's time for things to be shaken up. And that shakeup has worked incredibly well for Hawthorne, even if they have the worst record of the three teams with the new coaches. I am so impressed every week with the way they play, their preparation, and they've set themselves up for long-term success when I think most of us would have thought it was going to be at least a few more years before we're talking about them really being in the mix. Our final team to discuss this week and our final team across all of our bi-week progress reports is the Brisbane Lions, who I don't think we have all that much to do with small talk. I think we can just cut to the chase here. They're really good. They're one of the best teams in the competition. They currently sit in first on percentage, two-tenths of a percentage point above Melbourne, thanks to the Jamie Elliott goal with 45 seconds left in the D's loss to Collingwood for the Queen's birthday match. This is a team that was always earmarked as a top-four unit. Lockie Neal has been as good as he was in 2020, if not even better. Right now, he is your favorite to win the Brownlow medal. The thing is, this team's success will be determined by what they do in the finals. Can they avoid getting bounced quickly? Can they avoid losing at home? And I think the question really boils down to, is their defense good enough? I like what I've seen from Marcus Adams this year. Harris Andrews did surprisingly well against Max King. I think that radically shifted my perception of him from just, he's fine, 
who, okay, this is a big-time player who can step up against the best of the best because in terms of marking ability and scoring ability in the forward 50, Max King is pretty incredible. Daniel Rich is really good at moving the ball out of the back end, but is it enough? I really began to notice this during their win against Greater Western Sydney, especially when they went down by 30 in the first quarter. I noticed it again against Fremantle. It's that the Lions have a hard time getting numbers back quickly. Their top defenders are very willing to follow the movement of the ball up the ground, and it looks like that sometimes works to their detriment. It wasn't as much a factor this past round, I think, because of that matchup with Andrews and King, making them keep numbers in the defensive 50 more of the time. One thing that could really help counteract that and could really take their defense to the next level would be if Kadeen Coleman has more games that are even close to what he did against St. Kilda because he was phenomenal last week. If they can get even half that performance out of him on a regular basis, they're going to have the missing piece to the puzzle. They have no problem scoring. They were without Eric Hipwood for the first eight rounds, without Joe Danaher rounds eight through 12, and their scoring production has been just fine no matter who they've had to throw in or out. Some nice performances from younger pieces as well, which is something that we talk about less with the Lions because their core is more established. But Devin Robertson had a hell of a day against GWS. And even one or two more performances like that from him throughout the season could be a really good sign of where he's going. He continues to be on the ball. I'm waiting for him to get a couple more shots on goal as well. This team has so many good pieces that there are some really good ones that are left out most weeks, and it's going to be even more crowded with the good health they've had to this point. Ty Loman's working his way back. Devin Robertson's burst onto the scene and made it difficult to take him out. Mitch Robinson finally actually got a game outside of the injury sub role last week. It was a lot of fun to watch him. Darcy Fort was moved in the injury sub role, and that's not as a result of him doing anything negative while he's actually been on the field. He's been excellent. Yeah, but he has kicked him behind. They did just lose Dane Zorko to a minor hamstring injury, so he'll be out a couple weeks after the bye. But talent-wise, this team is there. It's just, can they get through finals properly? And it's one of those things where, on paper, they have every piece to, and yet it just hasn't happened yet. So I'll put this in the category of, I'll believe it when I see it. It should happen. I'd be tempted to pick them to win right now, just off of how good they are. And if Coleman keeps this up, they're really, really set defensively, which is their biggest concern. But for one reason or another, the last few years, they've just run into a brick wall in the finals. Sometimes they're their own brick wall. Sometimes it's another team getting hot at the right time. Sometimes it's a bad matchup. But the way sports work and the way winning championships works... If a team hasn't done it before or hasn't done it in a while, or in Brisbane's case, hasn't done it with any of their current players, it's one of those things where I need to see it actually happen before I believe it can be done. I'm not going to let them fool me. They're going to have to actually do it in order for me to say, yep, this is a flag winning team. Once they win one, they can easily win a bunch more. It could be the early 2000s all over again. They just have to get over the line that first time. Now, the way they finish the season will definitely impact how they stand. The Gabba provides substantial home field advantage. And looking at the games that they have there the rest of the way, Bulldogs round 16, Essendon 17, the home Q clash against Gold Coast round 19, and then Carlton 21 against triple premiership captain Michael Voss. 
and Melbourne round 23. Those two games, along with St. Kilda on the road in 22, should prime them for whatever they have to face in September. But I don't think we're going to be able to take a lot from those games because of their September track record. However, in the immediate, they've got Melbourne out of the bye Thursday night, round 15 at the G. Should be a great atmosphere. Could be a finals preview in more ways than one. They'll be playing back-to-back Thursdays out of the bye with that second one coming up against the Bulldogs. How many Thursdays have the Bulldogs had? Ridiculous. I don't mind it. They've been entertaining to watch. This Thursday, though, just like in round one, it's Richmond and Carlton, and unlike round one, it's actually opening that round slate of games. So that's the next game we'll be discussing in our next episode, our round 14 preview. Until then, we'll probably provide some thoughts on what we see around the league, especially with stories continuing to develop around Bailey Smith, Melbourne with the fallout from the Andrecoat incident, among others. Follow us at Americans Footy for our thoughts on all of that and more. Follow me personally at BenjaminHK01 for some reason, I guess. I will definitely get to talking more about my musical endeavors soon. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. Talk about all kinds of sports stuff on there, mostly American. I mostly keep my footy commentary to the Americans footy page, though not exclusively. And then you can find Ryan Harambe, the footy cat, who is currently in the hall making a big scene trying to get in here. You might be able to hear him shaking the door. He's on Instagram at cat named Brian. I'm going to let Ethan tend to grind right now. I'm going to get out of the room and I'm going to start editing this so y'all can hear it soon. Thanks a lot for tuning in again.